I want to invite you to please open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, specifically to Mark chapter 11. And if you've looked in your bulletin, you've already noticed the title of today's message, which is The Temple Condemned in the Shadow of the Fig Tree. And last Sunday, we learned some valuable lessons from the fig tree that Jesus cursed for not producing fruit. It was a tree that looked healthy on the outside, but when inspected by the Lord, it did not bear any fruit. It was all leaves. And as a result, Jesus cursed that tree and said, May no one ever eat of your fruit again. And the tree withered from the roots up and died. And the fig tree is loaded with symbolism and parallels that help us understand our passage today in Mark 11, verses 15 through 19, which I want to begin by reading right away because there is much to cover. Mark 11, starting in verse 15, says this, Then they, Jesus and his disciples, came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests And the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they would go out of the city. Let's pray and ask God to bless our study. Father, we bow our heads as a church family, asking that you would govern us, that you would lead us by the power of your Holy Spirit to see insights from your word, We pray that we would see it with clarity, that you would use it as it's intended, as a mirror for us to see uh, who you are and your your, um, economy for salvation as it related to Israel and worship in the temple, and that we would gain insights and be able to look at their heart responses, or in some instances, lack of responses, as it relates to their worship, and that we could learn and that you would convict us in the areas where we can be convicted and allow us to continue to grow uh, according to your word. And so we commit this time to you. We look forward to seeing how you bless it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as the title indicates, this passage falls directly into the shadow of the fig tree as Mark purposefully sandwiches it between the Lord's inspection and cursing of the fig tree in verses 12 through 14 and the consequences of the cursing and its death in verses 20 and 21. And we don't want to lose sight of this. And thus I included imagery of the tree in our outline, which is fill in the blank this week. So you'll be on the, on the lookout for uh, the terms that we're going to put in those blanks. But what we're going to look at is four parallels revealing Christ's cursing of the temple that shadow that are in the shadow of the fruitless fig tree. And you're going to notice the same images that made up last week's outline when we talk about the tree, the leaves, the lack of fruit, and the root 
of the problem. And this week we get to see what they represent. Well, let's get started with the first parallel in your outline. Jesus exposes and condemns the tree. Jesus, we're told at the beginning of the passage, is with his disciples. It is early in the Passion Week. And it's still only a day after his triumphal entrance. Jesus had an encounter with the fig tree in the morning, which Matthew, in his account, affirms that it was in the morning time. And now he's headed to the temple in Jerusalem. He is staying a couple miles away in a a little town of Bethany. And so it's a short two-mile walk. And verse 15 begins by saying, Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple. The temple is what we're focusing on here. And three times it's mentioned in the opening three verses and alluded to one time as a house of prayer. The temple represents the fig tree in the parable. And so if you're filling in the blank, you obviously know the first blank is tree, but you can do a slash and you can put the temple right next to it. The temple represents the fig tree in the parable. And as you know, Jerusalem's temple played a central part of their worship in Israel's life because God was manifest there. And so they would come to the temple to worship him. The first temple that Solomon had constructed was built on the site of the threshing floor, which King David purchased back in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verses 18 through 25. The threshing floor was located on Mount Moriah, where Abraham almost sacrificed Isaac in Genesis 22. So the temple was placed in a very unique location as it relates to Israel's history. The first temple was destroyed along with the Ark of the Covenant in 587-86, okay, right in those, those two years, B.C., by the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar. And after the fall of the Babylonian Empire in 539 B.C., Cyrus the Great of Persia issued a decree allowing Jews to return to Judea to rebuild the temple, which we read about in Ezra chapters 1 and 6, which focuses on the rebuilding of the temple. We also see a historic record mentioned in 2 Chronicles 36. Zerubbabel began work on the second temple, but had to stop due to difficulties. And so the temple was up and running, but it never returned to its previous glory, which would be exceeded when Herod the Great started renovations of the temple. And they they call this the third temple, but really it's just a renovation of the second rebuild, a a continuation, if, if you will. And that began in 20 B.C., Herod the Great, of course, being the Jewish background of the Herodians. And we see that the renovations started during this time and that they continued into the time of Christ. They were still happening when Christ was ministering on the earth. Our main takeaway is that the temple served as the historic hub of Israel's worship according to God's plan throughout the Old Testament. And I think that we get that. We see that. Jesus had been to the temple 
a number of times over the course of his life. It began with Jesus being presented according to the Jewish custom on the eighth day uh, at the temple. And you, you can see in that account in Luke 2 that Simeon, the prophet, prophesied over him. And then we also see in Luke 2, when Jesus was 12 years old, then his parents had made a visit to Jerusalem for the Passover. And so this also involved them going to uh, the temple again. When they returned, or were returning to Nazareth, they, they realized that Jesus wasn't with them. And so Luke 2, verses 45 through 50 say, When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, oh, I'm sorry, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. Even in his youth, the Lord Jesus Christ was consumed with the father's worship, specifically with what was taking place in the temple. And it isn't ironic that there are two temple visits that are of great significance. One marks the beginning of Jesus' public ministry at at the beginning, which takes place in John chapter 2. And the other marks the end of his public ministry, and that takes place here in Mark 11. Last Sunday, we confirmed that the fig tree represented the temple and the spiritual condition of Israel's worship, both in Mark 11 and in another parable in Luke 13. In Luke 13, the parable reveals that for three years, the man who owned the vineyard had kept coming to the vineyard to look for fruit on a specific tree. And he did not find any. And after three plus years, when he, from the time when he first came to the time where he noticed that it was no longer producing fruit, he, he makes an announcement that, uh, that, that, that it's going to be cut down for not producing produce. Important to understand that, to see that, even in that account in Luke 13, because it, it, it all ties together, and there's this clarity in God's Word, and so we need to see this. Jesus arrives in verse 15 on the Passion Week to fulfill this prophecy, that the tree is going to be cut down. He is exposing and condemning the tree. Jesus is going to find the state of the temple in regards to its worship in the same condition that it was three years earlier when he had visited the first time. And in John 2, which sounds eerily similar to Mark's account, this is what it says, and I want to read it so we have both perspectives. John 2, 13 through 17 says, The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, 
and the money changers seated at their tables. We get a little bit more narrative here too. Helps fill in some gaps for us. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And this is a quotation of Psalm 69.9, because zeal for his father's house had always consumed him. On no other occasion in our Lord's earthly ministry do we find him responding so passionately and fueled by such righteous indignation as we do when he visits the temple. Nothing seems to trouble Christ more than the gross irreverence which the priests permitted in and around the temple, especially when they boasted about their zeal for God's law. Question for you. Does zeal for our Heavenly Father to be worshipped consume you? Interesting question, doesn't it? And it's a good question. It's a spiritually healthy question for, for the believer to zeal for the Father to be worshipped consume you and we want to keep that before us uh, as as we progress through this passage as we look at christ as we see the, the 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 passion of his response how did jesus expose and condemn the temple and why well this leads us to the second parallel in our outline jesus exposes and condemns the leaves. Jesus exposes and condemns the leaves. Look at the middle of verse 15. And Jesus began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturn the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. We learned that the leaves in our parable of the fig tree represent the external religious activity of Israel. Their their rituals, their traditions. And so it's leaves in the second fill in the blank, but you can also put their external rituals, their external traditions next to it. Here the temple was buzzing with all kinds of activity. And it all looked so important, so purposed, as transactions were taking place. Yet the Lord is not pleased. His anger and righteous indignation are put on full display. And Mark uses this very strong word in the Greek when, and it's translated, drive out. Uh, and, and, and he uses it to describe Jesus driving out those who were buying and selling in the temple. John 15 uses the same Greek word in the first temple visit, which is a verb often used in connection with Jesus casting out or driving out demons like he did in Mark 8.16. As Jesus looked around and he saw all the commercialism that was taking place and defilement, he immediately began expelling it from his sight in the same way that he would cast a demon out of his sight. They had turned 
God's temple into a Jewish Walmart. Some sort of a, a, a really, in the end, you can picture it that way, some sort of a, a Jewish Walmart, and he immediately began driving out both buyers and sellers. And here's the irony. Those of us who do shop at Walmart, our family's Walmart shoppers, at least if you go to Walmart, you're probably going to get a pretty fair deal, right? They, they, they do their best, right, to, to, to mark the, the price down. But here, greed and extortion and duping and defrauding ruled the day. It was all about the money. And Jesus, we are told, overturned the money tables. He overturned the tables. Have you ever witnessed someone overturn a table? It's unbelievable. It's an aggressive and forceful act. It truly is. And this was by Jesus. And here's why. The money changers were those who exchanged Roman money for what was called the Tyrian shekel, which was required for the annual temple tax, which is imposed on all Jewish males. You can read about this tax in Exodus 30, 13. And the Tyrian shekel was the nearest available equivalent to the Old Testament shekel. And according to the Mishnah, the tax was due on the first of Nisan, two weeks before the Passover. Okay, so they even had a day their taxes were due. Ours is April 15th in this country. Just a reminder, it, it, it's coming up. And the exchange tables were set up in the temple during five days prior to the due date. And just like with us, if you didn't pay your taxes on time, it was oftentimes accompanied with a penalty. The money changers would take advantage of people by offering outrageous exchange rates. Not only would Passover programs get duped with the exchange rate that could be as high as 25%, but even after the correct currency, the prices of the animal sacrifices would have an outrageous markup on them as well. For those who couldn't afford a lamb, or perhaps they did have lambs, but they had defects or blemishes, so they wouldn't pass um, as the, the, the chief priest of the temple would inspect them. They would have to resort to buying a lamb at the temple. And those who were extremely poor could offer a dove. And just to give you an idea of the markup, a dove, which would normally cost about five cents in the market, would be sold for about $4 at the temple. So this is, we're, we're talking about an outrageous markup. I would liken the experience to being stuck at a modern international airport. You know, you, you're there. There's a reason why they can charge 15 or $20 for a hamburger, right? When you're at the airport. I mean, in the end, where else are you gonna go? You're kind of stuck. Not kind of, you are. And if you're in an international airport and you're a foreigner, then that means that you have to exchange money, right, in order to have the currency, in order to buy food or to buy anything else. And so that's why we see, typically at the airports, even the exchange rate is very high because banks aren't there and they, they know that they have people. It's just the way it is. 
And to some degree, we should expect this from the world. Because they serve the almighty dollar. But this is the temple of God. It was designed to be a place of worship. Not a marketplace. And so Jesus, he sees this happening, and he's disgusted. He wants them out. All of them. Get out. And I want you to take notice that he expels both those buying and selling. It makes sense that he would expel those who are selling, right? Because they're the ones who um, are in charge of the extortion and, and are really taking advantage of people. But, but why those who are buying? Let me help you understand this. The truth is, is that they were not prepared to worship. Many opted to buy animals at the temple rather than bring them from their own flocks due to the inconvenience. One commentator shared, the seller's concession became the buyer's convenience. End quote. Rather than taking the time to make sure that they had an animal prepared in advance to offer as an acceptable sacrifice, they put the responsibility on someone else. And this is also a, a, a key insight, just even as it related to animals. And we've learned that um, animals were, you know, of course, people relied on raising animals. To There, there was a strong um, uh, farm-like culture that um, people would raise animals, and oftentimes they would be kept in the stable that was even on the first floor of their home. And we talked about Jesus um, being born in a manger, not necessarily, um, or excuse me, in one of these stables. So on the first floor of the house, you would have the animals that were of great value, and they would bring them in to keep them protected. And so these animals, in many ways, would become like pets to the people. They got to know them. They got to interact with them. And I was raised on a farm, and Many of you weren't, but let me just share with you, animals even sometimes have their own little quirky personalities. And we see that with some of our pets and our, our, our dogs and cats. But the same was true with, with these animals, right? And so uh, some of them thought, well, rather than be inconvenienced and carry them all the way, and, and people had to travel in some instances great distances, oh, I'll just get one at the temple. I'll just, you know what they were saying? I'll prepare when I get there. That's ultimately what they were saying. I'll, I'll, I'll work it out once I get there. And Jesus knew that they were indifferent about their worship. And to some degree, the blame was as much on them for their lack of preparation as it was on the money changers for their extortion. Because if they were truly prepared in advance, then there would be no need for all this buying and selling that would be taking place at the temple. And thus we see Jesus in verse 16 putting a halt to anyone carrying merchandise through the temple. Many, many people thought, you know what? I'll just prepare when I get there. That was, that was the sentiment. It was ritual. It was ceremony. The heart was not engaged. And what a principle for us to consider as we think about our preparations to come worship God on Sunday mornings, right? It's easy, isn't it, for us just to have a, a hard attitude. I'll prepare when I get there, right? But God, God wants the heart. 
God wants your heart. God wants you engaged. God wants you to confess your sin. God wants you to, to be in his word. God wants you to prepare your heart on Saturday night or during the weekend if you know that there's going to be communion on a Sunday. God wants you engaged and he wants you free from thoughts of this world so that you can be engaged with the worship that's being sung at the church and engaged with the, with the lyrics. He's not interested in lip service. And he made the same accusation, ironically, to the Jews that the, the people honored me. This people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts, oh, their hearts are far from me. Have I prayed and confessed my sin before I, I come and, and worship the Lord? Is my heart and mind filled with thoughts of the world? Or thoughts of what God has done for me in Christ? J.C. Ryle says, Let us remember these verses whenever we go into the house of God and take heed that we go in a serious frame and do not offer the sacrifice of fools. Let us call to mind where we are what we are doing, what business we are about, and in whose presence we are engaged. Let us beware of giving God a mere formal service while our hearts are full of the world. Let us leave our business and money at home and not carry them with us to church. Let us beware of allowing any buying and selling in our hearts in the midst of our assemblies. The Lord still lives who casts out buyers and sellers from the temple, and when he sees such conduct, he is much displeased, end quote. And we know that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Yet we also need to know and understand that God looks at the heart that's behind the faith, behind our actions. Proverbs 16, 2, 1 Corinthians 4, 5. And I agree with Ryle on this, that this passage serves as a good reminder. And here's what we need to see in the context of what we're looking at in the temple. The rituals and traditions of the temple worship that were taking place were divorced from their hearts. They were just like leaves on the fig tree that made it look healthy on the outside. But there was no real fruit on the inside. Well, this is a natural segue to our third parallel in our outline. Jesus exposes and condemns the lack of fruit. He exposes and condemns the lack of fruit. Look at the beginning of verse 17. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? And here Jesus quotes a portion of Isaiah 56, 7. But I want you to turn there so you can see the entire verse in its context, if you would. Isaiah 56. It's so insightful to see it firsthand. Isaiah 56, 7 says, Even those I will bring to my holy mountain. The holy mountain, of course, is referring to Jerusalem, right? And make them joyful 
in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. This was God's desire for Israel. That they would serve and that they would be a light to the nations. But here we need to see and understand what Israel anticipated to happen when Messiah came. In Jesus' day, they anticipated and expected that the Messiah was going to purge Jerusalem and the temple of Gentiles, aliens, and foreigners. And we see this in the proud disposition that the the Israelites, and specifically the leadership, had towards Gentiles. We also see further evidence when we consider their, uh, their, their response to Roman oppression and rule. And we see written evidence of this in the Mishnah and other Jewish writings that express a deep disdain for the Gentiles. The action Jesus takes at the temple, however, <coughs> excuse me, is exactly opposite. He does not clear the temple court of the Gentiles, but instead <coughs> he clears out the corrupt practices of the Jewish leadership and the sacrificial system that they were using to take advantage of the Gentiles. Isaiah chapter 56 speaks of the extension of God's salvation to people who were formerly excluded from it, foreigners, eunuchs, exiles, and Gentiles. And the passage that Jesus quotes in the temple, in other words, includes the very people that they thought that the Messiah was going to exclude. Jesus is a very different kind of Messiah than what Israel had expected. And the temple and those who God intended to worship in it wasn't reserved exclusively for Israel, but was, it was to include all nations, eunuchs, foreigners, and Gentiles. And this is especially important to Mark's audience that consisted predominantly of Gentiles. The temple wasn't intended to be the sole property of Israel, but a witness to the nations, the place where anyone who, quote, loves the name of the Lord may worship him, end quote, Isaiah 56, 6, a place where God, quote, will gather still others, Isaiah 56, 8. Arkett Hughes writes, the call for the temple to be a house of prayer for all nations was a direct quotation from Isaiah 56, 7 and stated a main purpose for the court of the Gentiles, to be a place where the Gentiles could come for prayer and meditation in seeking God. But as it was, it was impossible to concentrate on anything, much less to pray and worship. In his commentary, R. Kent Hughes has a very good sense of humor, and he, he was saying that it was, it was the, the temple atmosphere was like a, like a cross between a county fair and the Wall Street Stock Exchange. Like if you were to combine the, the animals and the noises and the county fair and all the craziness with, you know, the Wall Street trade, you know, the stock floor, I'll take two, I'll take two, and all the yelling that's going back and forth. I thought that was pretty, a pretty good illustration. He goes on, this desecration of the court of the Gentiles was a massive national sin against God and the lost people of the world. It was doubly serious at this Passover time when the heart of Jewish religion 
was especially revealed. End quote. And all this we know was days before the Passover. And this should have been a time of deep prayer and reflection for God's people in the presence of Gentiles. And it also would have been an, an opportunity for the Gentile who was seeking to be reconciled to the God of Israel. The Passover was a commemoration of God's deliverance of Israel from the bondage of the Egyptians. We see this spelled out for us in Exodus chapters 12 and 13. And prior to God striking Egypt with the final plague, he instructed the congregation of Israel to each take a lamb. And if you, couldn't, if you didn't have a lamb, you could take a sheep or a goat. And you were to offer it as a sacrifice and you were to take the blood from that animal and you were to mark it on your doorposts and on the roof beams of your house. And this would serve as a demonstration of faith. And God would see it and would pass over that house and not allow that home to be struck with that final plague, which those familiar with the account will recall it was actually the death of the firstborn. An awful, awful, horrific plague. And so the annual commemoration of Passover at the temple celebrates God's faithfulness in always providing a substitute for sin, which he was faithful to do. But it was, it was annual, right? The, the animals, uh, it was an ongoing system. Israel's temple worship was to bear witness of the Lord's ongoing faithfulness and to bear fruit according to God's plan for them to be witnesses to the Gentiles. Not only were they unfruitful, the current temple activities, according to Jesus, at the end of verse 17, have him say, but you have made it a robber's den. Jesus quotes Jeremiah 7.11, which in the context also tells us a lot. It is a passage of judgment. And as you continue on in verses 12 through 15, it reveals that God was going to do to the temple of Solomon what he did to the shrine at Shiloh, and that was to utterly destroy it. And so by quoting Jeremiah, Jesus suggests that God was going to do the same to the temple of Herod that existed in his day. Instead of the temple being a house of prayer, the failing chief priests and scribes, had perverted temple worship into a means of extortion that was well known to all. But the real shame in this spiritual robbery was that the Gentiles, and indeed all seeking Israel, were being led away from true worship. Let me say it this way. There was no fruit that was growing on the tree. Was there a time was there a time where fruit could be found on the tree? Was there a time where God was pleased with their animal sacrifices and pleased with their heart preparation and the worship that was received at the temple? There was. There was. But due to the corrupt leadership, due to hard-heartedness, that time had come to an end. And Jesus exposes and condemns the lack of fruit. James Edwards shares a very important insight for us here. 
Mark does not say that Jesus pronounces judgment on the Jews. The judgment is against the temple. And as the following story indicates in Mark eleven twenty seven through 33, against the religious authorities who superintended it. To conclude that the judgment was against the Jewish people as a whole would deny God's relationship with his covenant people and to deny God's sovereignty over historic Israel is inevitably to deny his sovereignty over the process of redemption. Jesus is rather repeating an ancient prophetic refrain from, uh, from Hosea 9.16, which says this, Ephraim is blighted, their root is withered, they yield no fruit. And this explains why Jesus in the parable of the fig tree pronounced judgment when he said, may no one eat of your fruit again. It's over. Temple worship as they knew it is over. All four parallels revealing Christ's cursing of the temple and the shadow of the fruitless fig tree are right here. Jesus exposes and condemns the tree. Then he exposes and condemns the leaves. Then he exposes and condemns the lack of the fruit. And fourth and final parallel, Jesus exposes and condemns the root of the problem. The root of the problem. In verse 18 it says, The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When I listened to Steve Lawson preach a sermon on this passage, when he got to this point and in and, and this verse, he, he, he shared this. He said, there's a saying in the South that whenever you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one you hit is the one that yelps. Okay? Pack of dogs, throw it in. The one you hit is the one that yelps. And Jesus' words exposed and condemned the heart of the Pharisees when they heard him loud and clear. Just like the disciples heard Jesus when he spoke the fatal words to the fig tree. Christ's words in his teaching left the chief priests and the scribes nowhere to run, just like it had done throughout his entire earthly ministry. These were condemning words of judgment from Isaiah and Jeremiah, and they were directed right at them. And the heart of the problem was that their hearts were the problem. Their hearts were not engaged. They were unbelieving, and they were directed by false motives. And how many times do we see Jesus expose their hard-heartedness and their pride throughout the Gospels? It seems like every other page, isn't it? When you read through the Gospel accounts, constantly calling them out, it's a lot. And Mark's account doesn't record it, but Matthew's does. It records the Olivet Discourse, which takes place during the Passion Week, when Jesus unleashes that barrage of eight woes as he speaks to the scribes and the Pharisees. And by doing so, he reveals their heart condition. And I won't read them all, but there's one that aligns well with our final parallel in Matthew 23, 27, and 28. It's the seventh woe that Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, 
but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Imagine like seven more of those in other forms. I mean, that was, it's, it's, it's intense. It's intense. Jesus calls their bluff. He calls them out. And their time of leading temple worship is over. It's done. Their spiritually dead hearts are just like the roots of the fig tree that wither after being cursed and they're, they're dried up from the roots. And there will be a radical change that occurs later at the end of the Passion Week. We, we get to look forward to it and then we're coming up on the season to, to, to celebrate Resurrection Sunday. But there's something that takes place after the resurrection, that, specifically at the temple, and you recall what it is, what happens, that temple veil is torn in two, Right? is split from the top, right? right? God's work all the way down to the bottom to man, it splits wide open, giving people direct access to the Holy of Holies, direct access to the Lord himself. It takes place when the, the perfect once for all spotless lamb, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is slain on the cross and both Jew and Gentile will now have direct access to God through Christ. The need for Israel's temple and ongoing animal sacrifices will be put to rest, just as Hebrews 10 states, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. And this is the glorious reality of the gospel. And the, it's the perfect, spotless righteousness that we sing about on Sundays that's credited to our account and to everyone who trusts in Christ. Oh, dear friend, have you trusted in Christ? Are you someone here today that has just gone with the, the, the tradition of the church and the ritual of getting up on Sunday mornings to, to just go clock in and clock out somewhere? Or have you had a one-on-one -on -one encounter with the Savior? Is it established through a personal relationship? You know, I thought about that even as with the animal sacrifices. You know, when they would have that personal relationship with that animal. That it costs something. That it would cost them something. Instead of just going through the ritual and, and just buying it. And having no emotional connection with it whatsoever. And so it is with churchgoers today in the, the widespread evangelical culture, right? They go. They, they clock in. They, they, they'll, they'll oblige to the rituals. They'll, they'll go with the flow. But do you, my friend, have a personal relationship with him? And is it real? And is it real? 
Make sure that it's real. That you're clinging to Christ. That there's a relationship with Christ. And that you're not like the Pharisees who are tempted to cling to some form of self-righteousness. Turn and trust completely in Christ today. Cling to Him. And when we trust in Christ with all of our heart, there's now a new temple that gets formed. Right? There's a new temple. God's Word teaches us that His presence is manifested in our hearts and our bodies become a temple of the indwelling Holy Spirit according to 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, which says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Therefore, worship God. Worship God with your body. Heart, soul, mind, and strength, and body. Everything, all that you are. Let it be presented. Romans 12 Two, presenting our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice of 12, 1 and 2, right? We're not going to be conformed to this world, but we're going to present our bodies as living and holy sacrifices, which is our acceptable form of worship, right? That's what takes place at our temple. That's our temple. We have the responsibility now. He gives us the commands. He helps us to, 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 to keep the temple clean. And we have to look to Him. And we have to rely upon His strength. And we cannot do it in the flesh. And it is how God bears fruit in the life of the believer. How do you do it? By bearing gospel fruit in your life. By walking in a manner worthy of the gospel calling and keeping His commands. And this is what allows us to be salt and light to the Gentiles. In Christ, we are Gentile temples witnessing to other Gentiles. Now, how wild is that? That is wild. That is wild. And the church is our assembly that allows us, it allows us to come together to confess our sins and to be renewed in the gospel, to be prayerful together. And I was going to share an email with you at the beginning of the service, but I'm glad I saved it for the end because it really ties everything together. It's from this old friend of our church. You may remember him. He's been gone for so long, you may not really remember him. Remember Sam Cogburn? Remember that guy? He and Amanda, daughter Leah Jane, on the mission field, serving a one-year mission in Malawi, those who are visiting our church. And recently, he's had an opportunity to evangelize two men. Avis, who's a Seventh-day Adventist, and Muhammad, who is a Muslim. And Sam has been sharing the gospel and encouraging them to repent and to trust in Christ, to turn to Christ, the the only way that you can be made right with God, the true God. In our prayer ministry, those who are part of it know how often that we have prayed for the ministry that, that the Cogburns are a part of. And both men, Sam shared, made a profession of faith in Christ last month. 
and Sam emailed us this, this amazing update talking about the fact that they placed their faith and their hope in Christ. But he just sent an email to our elder team yesterday, and I wanted to share what he wrote. It ties it all together. He says, hey guys, we should be sending a newsletter soon, but I wanted to give you a quick update on my Muslim friend. I was able to meet with him one more time before he left for Ethiopia, and it was incredible. I could not have asked for a more clear and strong profession of faith. I went through every important gospel category, and he affirmed them all unhesitantly. Every answer from him was, quote, based on my analysis of the Bible, quoting him. He said Islam is a false religion and Muhammad a false prophet, and he just accepted it because that was what he was raised with and what his family believed. We talked about church and baptism and the cost of discipleship and what, a, a, what true faith looks like, and I pointed him to the Grace to You website. He asked for a church recommendation before I even offered, but I was able to gather the names of several gospel churches in his city from a trusted Christian. We talked about his family. He'll probably face opposition, but probably not physical persecution. He wants his seven children to be saved now too. He understands the exclusivity of the gospel and has plans and has a plan for how to teach them and his wife the gospel and the Bible. He kept telling me that my sharing the gospel with him will not end with him, but will go to his family and his relatives and his friends. And it will bear fruit. And in some instances, 30. In some instances, 60. And in some instances, 100-fold. He concludes with this. We shared a few tears at the end of this meeting together. He talked about what his new life in Christ feels like. He has let go of worry and fear and is at peace because his eternity is settled. It was pretty amazing. He's so happy and thankful for the message of salvation that he was ignorant of. Everything at this point looks like a true profession. I taught him the parable of the soils too, though. So praise God with me. It was quite incredible. Thank you so much for your prayers. Wow. Wow. God's house, God's temple was a house of prayer for all the Gentiles. And the church today, our assembly that we gather together is still a house of prayer for the Gentiles. And may we tie it all together and may we continue to, to, to live out our faith, put feet on our faith and to share the gospel. Well, our final verse serves as a fitting conclusion as Jesus completes his cursing of the temple in the shadow of the fruitless fig tree. It says, when evening came, they, Jesus and the disciples, would go out of the city. The phrase, went out of the city, should be granted its full symbolic force that Jesus has parted ways with the temple cult, and he did so, leading all his disciples to do the same. He made the transition so that we could be his temples and his witnesses for his glory. May we continue to do just that as we walk in faithfulness to Christ and the gospel 
today and all the days ahead, church. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. Gracious God and Father, we pause and just want to praise you for your goodness, for your, just for the truth of Scripture, the perspicuity of Scripture that we see supporting um, the beginning and the end of all the decisions that were made as it related to just even temple worship coming to an end. We thank you that we can hear these truths proclaimed and that our hearts can receive them. And we pray, Father, that you would allow us to continue to magnify you in every way. That you would allow us to be uh, temples of the Holy Spirit and that we would indeed walk worthy of the gospel. And that we would understand that we were bought at a price and that our bodies do serve as temples of the Holy Spirit. Help us to continue to grow in our sanctification. Help us to um, regularly come to your house of prayer to confess our sin. Help us to continue to be prayerful for those that are unsaved amongst our families, amongst our friends and co-workers at our schools. Help us, Father, to be prayerful for them and help us to see and bear much fruit as we live out the gospel in our lives. We commit our very lives to you. And I pray, Father, that if there's someone here today, would you grab their heart? Would you not let them leave this place until they're right with you? That they would repent of their unbelief and trust completely and fully in Christ for salvation. And his perfect righteousness will be theirs. We pray that this is your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.